talk about the political unrest that we are facing um, in our day in this nation. And anybody can determine, can assess that we are facing unparalleled polarization in our nation right now. And we ask ourselves, why is that? Before we get into that question of, of, of why, I might go through a couple uh, slides here that kind of illustrate the problem. A uh, recent University of Virginia poll showed that 52% of Biden supporters view Republicans as a threat to American life, while 47% of Trump supporters hold the same view of the Democrats. 41%, this is scary, 41% believe that violence is justified to stop Republicans from achieving their goals. Similarly, 38% of Trump supporters endorse violence to stop Democrats. You put all this together, and if you say these percentages are representative of populations, that's over 60 million people that believe violence is on the table to stop the agenda of their political opponent. It's very troubling. And how did we get here? Well, it goes back to my uh, idea of a holy war. I think that in the broadest terms, the uh, struggle over American politics today has ceased to be a political debate, and it has become a moral debate, a discussion over morality. And I'm going to argue that that's not the sphere of government. That's the sphere of private, voluntary society, like family and church. It's not the domain of government. And because it's become the domain of government, it's no longer a political uh, row. It is a holy war. But here are the statistics again, and moving on. <clears throat> Pew Research shows that, in quote, the partisan divide in the United States has reached a point where political affiliation is not just a difference in policy preference, but an entirely different worldview. We are no longer facing the war of ideas. We are descending into a holy war where each side believes they have the moral mandate to even annihilate their evil opponent who stands in the way not merely of progress, but of justice. I believe this war over justice is dreadfully misplaced. Left and right do not have a proprietary corner on justice because justice, righteousness, and evil are the domain of God and not of state. I see left and right as Jack and Jill fighting over Tom's ball, so to speak. The quarrel over realities historically belonging to voluntary society, not coercive governments. Can you legislate morality or coerce righteousness at the point of a bayonet? Can you force people to love other people or change the heart of man toward another man? Government can restrain evil and punish evildoers, as the Apostle Paul showed, but it cannot inspire or empower people to goodness, love, mercy, compassion. This is like asking a fish to teach a cat how to fly. It doesn't go together. 
how did we get here? How did we get to the place where politics seems to be the only domain for resolving the issues of justice and morality in our nation? The church, family, and voluntary societies, I would argue, neglected their mission and role by foolishly adopting the paradigm of civil pluralism. This breakdown of voluntary authority in local faith communities, families, and homes created a vacuum that demanded to be filled. The state did not so much steal the church's role, it merely filled a function abandoned by a negligent Christianity increasingly more interested in being liked than being faithful. If we look back at historical precedent, we would have had no unified vision as a, as a community, as a people, for limited government on the heels of the revolution had there not been a great awakening preceding it. There would have been no cohesive paradigm of freedom of religion, separation of church and state, had there been no great awakening across all American colonies transcending denominational boundaries. A revival in spirituality made establishing a limited constitutional republic possible. Historian Nathan O'Hatch and Michael Koinsky, Michal Koinsky, both respectively prove that the American Revolution and unique system of limited constitutional government was directly tied to the revival that came just before called the Great Awakening. A lot of people say that we are a democracy, and they say this a lot, and it's not categorically untrue, but a democracy comes from the Greek demos kratos, and it means rule of the people. And a straight-up democracy really just means that the majority sets the course of the nation, sets the course of, of, of the of the. The, the polity. The problem with a straight-up democracy is that it doesn't protect minorities. There is no concept of minority protection in a democracy because if the majority disagrees, you lose. So we are not, we were not, our founders did not put forth the idea of a straight-up democracy. They instead proposed a republic. And a republic, unlike a democracy, is not the rule of man or the rule of the majority, it is the rule of law. And the first in history to coin what would become, in modern vernacular, the ideal of, of a republic was Cicero. And he, he described it in his writings like this, a republic is that free and voluntary association of men under God's law. This is, this is the idea that there are laws in, the, in nature, that there is a right way to do things, and that people can come together peacefully if they submit to this transcendent law. So this is the idea that a republic is a nation or a community under a transcendent law from a transcendent lawgiver. And this is what, this is what the founders uh, proposed. Thus, the Declaration of Independence acknowledges that people do not receive their inherent rights 
from human beings or human institutions. Instead, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For this reason, because we receive our liberty from God, human authority must always be held suspect and therefore limited, leaving to God the invasive duty of dealing with human sin, human motivation, and internal and moral restraint. Our founders did not negate the idea of sovereignty altogether. They negated the idea of human sovereignty. In fact, like Cicero, they believed that a limited government, a republic under law, necessitated God, (laughs) necessitated the reality of God in culture. And so we have these quotes. John, President John Adams, when addressing the Massachusetts militia, famously said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. If you have ever heard someone say that our constitution is not good for today, or if you've ever felt or heard someone express that it is inadequate today, you should know that its framers anticipated and humbly stated that it would prove inadequate if ever uncoupled from the morality and spirituality that gave birth to this unique form of government. William Penn earlier stated, Our most one must become a citizen of the governor of the universe before he can be a citizen of human government. You see, totalitarianism doesn't require a vibrant faith community. Totalitarianism does not require spirituality or morality in the fabric of a, of a nation because it doesn't even pretend to be limited. Totalitarianism doesn't. It takes those responsibilities from people, and it has no bias to keep people as free as possible. It instead has the bias to keep people as safe as possible and as predictable and controlled as possible. But if you're going to adopt the concept of a limited government, you've got to deal with man's baser nature. And that's what our founders recognized. They knew that man had limitless potential to discover his good and his destiny. But they also knew that man had the demons of his baser nature to deal with. And they said, we can't limit government unless God is holding in check that baser nature. And so if you wanted to destroy the possibility of limited government, what would you do? Here's a French diplomat and philosopher who wrote the most extensive study on American life and government in the early 1800s, just short decades after the ratifying of the Constitution. It's Alexis de Tocqueville. He says many things, and some of his best quotes I didn't even bring here. But he says this. He says, Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. He says that, he says, elsewhere he says, 
I searched everywhere for the hand of government in America, and I did not find it, and yet I saw that everyone was operating in an orderly manner. He said, this is not like government in Europe. And he, he concludes by saying, I searched for the greatness of America in her economy, in her matchless constitution, in her prosperity, in her world commerce. He said, I didn't find it. He said, it was not until I went into the churches of the nation and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I discover the greatness of America. That's a quote. He said, America is great because she is good, and if she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. I hope I'm bringing home this idea that human nature has two aspects to it. It's not entirely good, and it's not entirely bad. It has the potential for good, and it has the potential for evil. And external human government can only be limited if God and conscience and faith are restricting those baser tendencies in human nature. George Washington, in his farewell address, stated, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He believed that if you knocked these pillars out from under the house, the house would collapse. And John Adams believed the same thing. He humbly said, our government won't work unless this nation remains moral and religious. Benjamin Franklin, not known for being the most pious of the founders, said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As a nation becomes corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. So this is an insight. This says that totalitarians come to power to begin to restrain by external force what was formerly hindered by conscience and the invisible gentle hand of God. Thomas Jefferson, also not the most devout of the founders, said, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God. He believed that 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 faith in people's mind was alone the basis for sustained liberty. So I want to ask you a, a blunt question. If you accepted the premise that government could only be limited so long as it coexisted with a robust faith environment of internal and moral restraint, and you didn't like that, and you wanted to return us to the totalitarianism more common beyond our borders, what would you do? What would you do to make government fall apart, limited government fall apart? If you saw that there was a pillar that supported it, that it would fall if that pillar was gone, what would you do? You'd knock that pillar out. You would begin to destroy the authority of God and faith communities in the name of freedom and thus seduce people not to freedom but to tyranny. The possibility of limited government was always predicated on the requirement of moral restraint. 
So the problem is not that humanity has evolved to no longer be subject to the Constitution. The problem is that faith communities have devolved to abdicate their responsibility and authority such that now the government has to take their place. Then the iron hand of coercion could slip on the laced glove of compassion and begin to fill the roles formerly consigned to voluntary societies. There isn't a, a historian who would disagree that if you looked at the church of the 21st century and the church at the founding of the republic, you would see permissiveness versus strictness. You would see discipline versus no discipline. You would see moral and ethical constraint versus libertinism. And it's ironic that the freest Christians are bequeathing to us a totalitarian government, but the most constrained conservative Christians gave to us the freest form of government known to man. How did this happen? Well, I've already alluded to it. I submit that the church failed to distinguish between two kinds of authority and failed to distinguish between two kinds of freedom. The Apostle Paul talks about freedom in a favorable way, but he also talks about bondage in a favorable way. <laughs> he says that he is the bond slave of Christ, right? He says that he is a slave of righteousness, right? But he also says that do not let your liberty, anyone take your liberty from you. And, whom, and Jesus says, whom the Son makes free is free indeed. So we have in Scripture the celebration of a kind of freedom coexisting with the celebration of a kind of bondage. And that's, that's the key. There's a baser nature that has to be restrained, and then there's a godly potential that has to be released. Who does the restraining? Can government coerce and constrain our conscience? No, it has to be voluntary authority, authority that we choose to accept in our lives that does that more difficult aspect. And then government that bears the sword needs to stay in its place and leave well enough alone. The church lacking any sufficient identity or purpose beyond individualistic salvation increasingly co-opted the paradigm of authority, freedom, and individualism appropriate to civil society. They confused the two. Caesar started acting like Christ, and Christ started acting like Caesar. I mean the body of Christ is what I mean. The church adopted doctrines that conceived of no stark distinction between these two different kinds of authority. Christians reasoned that if pluralism was reasonable for civil government, it was suitable for the church also. If individualism was good for the broader society, it was suitable for the church also. If Caesar's kind of authority should be questioned, limited, held suspect, then Christ's kind of authority should be questioned, limited, and held suspect. And the devil laughed as he saw that hindrance in society, that hindrance to the baser nature was increasingly being taken out of the way, all in the name of freedom. 
so that the ultimate tyranny of the Antichrist might be revealed to fill the void and save humanity from itself once they rejected the lordship of the Lamb of God. Here is a paradox. Most of us are familiar with, second, uh, with 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7, where Paul says that the Antichrist is going to appear at a certain time in history. What, what was going to mark his appearance? Was it going to be a time of, of authoritarianism that was going to give release to the Antichrist? No. What was going to mark the appearance of the Antichrist? Something that hindered was going to be taken out of the way. So that's an irony in my view. But there's a profound truth in it. There was a hindrance on society. There was a hindrance on the man of sin. But then all of a sudden it was going to be gone. And then when it's gone, who gets to show up to save the day? Except the Antichrist. So he will hinder... It says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now restrains it, God, in the culture, will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The man of sin, the coming of the lawless one, will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. So it's ironic that the, 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 the epic capstone totalitarian of all human history, the Antichrist, is going to come in a time of release. That's how we're going to get him to show up. In a time of release. When hindrances on human depravity are removed, then he can show up. Once the church, as a voluntary society, tasked with binding and loosing, began to adopt and mirror the pluralistic paradigms appropriate to the secular state, it was on the fast track toward obsolescence. So, this is an irony. And what we're saying, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to communicate, is that the only way to turn this thing back around is to learn to celebrate what the church used to be, and to learn to question what it has become. This craziness that has been brought to us as freedom in Christ and liberty in Christ, it has seduced us to a, to a form of debauchery that only totalitarianism can put back in the, in the cage, so to speak. The Janie's out of the bottle. What do we do? I found great inspiration from a book that I read last year called Live Not By Lies. And uh, the title was borrowed from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's infamous or famous essay, Live Not By Lies. But this is a book by Rod Dreher, Live Not By Lies. And, and in this book, he talks about what Christians did in the face of social collapse or revolution and the like. And there was one individual, Tomislav Kolakovsik, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's close enough. Tomislav Kolakovsik, who saw, he was, he was a refugee 
from Croatia and he lived in Czechoslovakia and he saw that the Soviets were going to take over in the 30s and he saw what was going to happen. And he formed a faith community that he believed differed greatly from the status quo of Christianity. And he formed it for the purpose of enduring the attack that he saw coming. And he called it the family. And they, 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 they taught a lot of things, but one of their dictums, this, this faith community, one of their dictums was see, judge, act. And um, I, I, feel, I felt like that was deeply meaningful because he said, you're moving into a time of deception. You're moving into a time of blurred lines. And the, the danger is that the righteous will be paralyzed by the confusion. And this is, this is how the Bible describes it. It says that in the last days, it's going to be mystery Babylon the Great. It doesn't say it's going to be Babylon the Great. That's a place somewhere on a map that you can point to. It says it's going to be mystery Babylon the Great. So the nature of the confusion, the Babel, Babel means confusion. The nature of the confusion is that it's a mystery. People don't see it. And so this, this priest, Tomislav Kolokovsik, taught his followers this dictum, see, judge, act. And he said, you've got to train yourself to see what's actually in front of you. You've got to stop just acting like this is normal. You picture if you were a missionary kid and you were living in the Amazon in some primitive place and you hadn't been in the United States for 10 years and you came back, what would you see? And how would it impact you? You would see the change. You would see the slow creep. It's not even that slow anymore. You would see things. But it's going to take some intentionality on the part of Christians to see <laughs> and to say, am I seeing something here? And then he says the next step is to judge. Of course, this word can be used negatively, but Scripture does say that the saints will judge the world and that they are supposed to even judge the church. <laughs> So there's a proper way to judge through the word of God. Jesus says, I do not judge you. The words I speak judge you. So when we see, we've got to make a decision. We've got to make a, an assessment. We can't just see and be all uptight. God's not trying to build an army of fretters. Amen. We've got to see, and we've got to make an honest evaluation. No matter the consequences, no matter the implications that freak us out, or make us feel there's no option. We gotta, we gotta do that. And then we gotta act. And if we won't, if we won't do those first two things, we'll never get to the third. If we don't, if we're not honest about what we're confronting, and if we don't make a decision about what we're confronting, then we're never gonna make a change in our lives. I'm thankful that 50 years ago this year, my parents started a community that was built on this premise of see, act, judge. That wasn't a spoken dictum in their, in their beginning, but that's how they lived. Don't take anything for granted. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. We've got to see. We've got to act. We've got to see. We've got to judge. And we've got to act. Looking back over time, we see that the institutions that were once 
entirely Christian in their nature. Expressions of the church, like hospitals, universities, even welfare, all of these things have been completely taken over by the state. All of the hospitals, they were not state-run, state-sanctioned institutions at all. They were church hospitals. They were charities for people who couldn't have the medical care that others had. The same with universities. Oxford, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, you name it. All of the universities that, that set the course and, and trained the, 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 the civil priesthood of our day, they were all invented as, established as schools for training ministers. But this just shows us how what God gave the church to do, it stopped doing when it confused the two kinds of authority. And in the void, the state took it over. And now the state is fighting over morality and it's just getting worse and worse. It's not going to stop. And it's all because the church won't be the church. We once had a president of the United States come out here and spend a day, milk a cow. He came to church here with us and, and, uh, on, an, on another occasion. And, and, uh, but on one of his visits, he said, you know, if everybody lived like this, there'd be no need for my job. That's... That's what the church needs to think about. How are we supposed to be? If, if all the Christians, all those who call themselves Christians, were actually bringing back that, those values and that restraint and that identity and that purpose of times past, would we really still believe that the Constitution was antiquated and in need of being replaced? I don't think so. Think about this scripture from Jesus. He says, The kings of the Gentiles have absolute power. Is that a totalitarian statement? It is. And he separates, he says, This is how the Gentiles are. The kings of the Gentile have absolute power and lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called tyrants? Masters? What are they called? benefactors. So he's saying, he's teaching us a profound irony that totalitarianism comes in the form of benefaction, of compassion, of taking the place of loving people when that was never the place of the state. Alexei de Tocqueville said, the health of a democratic society may be measured by the quality of functions performed by the private citizens as opposed to the government. Okay. How has pluralism, individualism, and freedom of the flesh served the church of our day? How's it doing? Not great. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the people who joined, who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. It's not working.
29% of Americans now identify as having no religion, up from 26 in 2019 and only 16% in 2007. It's heading in the wrong direction. Categorically, every study from Gallup to Pew, all of them, they all show the exact same thing. The percentage of Americans who identify as nothing in particular when asked what religion they are grew from 16% in 2017 to 20% in 2020. The share of Americans who pray daily fell to 45% in 2021 compared to 58% in 2007. The secularizing trends, Gallup says, have been evident for a long time. They show no signs of slowing and certainly no signs of reversing. Fewer, this is Gallup again, fewer than half of Americans belong to a church, coupled with the rise of religious nuns. Eh, even people of faith are less likely to join a house of worship. Religious nuns are not to be mistaken with the pious ladies who wear the habit. Um, <clears throat> the religious nuns are those who in polls are asked, are you Christian, are you non-believer, are you none? You know, and they give they check the what what faith do you have and they say none. N O N E S. Currently, thirty-one percent of millennials have no religious affiliation, which is up from twenty-two percent a decade ago. I mean, we're talking about millions of people to change these percentages. Tens of millions of people. Thirty-three percent of the portion of Generation Z that has reached adulthood have no religious preference, quote-unquote. That's Gallup poll. A record low 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God, down from 24% the last time in 2017, and half of what it was at its high in 1980 when they started asking the question. So when I was uh, in the 80s, when I was born, half of Americans thought the Bible was the Word of God. Less than 20% believe that now. A new high of 29% say the Bible is, quote, a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. This marks the first time significantly more Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired than as the literal word of God, the first time in history. As the church has lost its influence, its direction, its identity, and its authority in the name of freedom in Christ and false theology, what has replaced it is the cult of statism. It's not like we all got free. We all got freer for a season until now we're going to start seeing that crank down. And for the first time in our lives, a majority of millennials think that the First Amendment, the right of free speech, a majority, over 
believe it should be limited. The people should not have the right to say whatever they want to say. So I suggest that the, 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 the totalitarianism, the, the creep on our liberties is already encroaching. And it's happening through the rationalization of things we would have never even considered plausible in former times. Look what's happened in Canada. Look what's happening in California. We're thankful for the court system that to some extent slows things down, but it's all heading in one direction. Why? It's two kinds of authority and it's confusing these. Authority becomes unavoidably dangerous and destructive when it confuses coercive and voluntary roles. Let me explain. If a mom lets her children consume only donuts and candy, you would agree that she is irresponsible, negligent, perhaps she might even use the word abusive. If a mom would not, would allow her children to eat nothing but donuts and candy. How many would agree with that? Okay. So that is an expression of how we accept loving authority in society. Moms love their kids, care for their kids, kiss their kids, tuck their kids into bed at night, and they have this right to impose limits on their kids. But let's try that in another twist. Let's say it is the government's responsibility to ensure mothers do not give their kids more donuts and candies than are healthy. How many of us are comfortable with that statement? We can do a little bit more absurd, reductio ad absurdum here. We can say it is categorically true that dental hygiene is a benefit to all individuals and those they hang out with. Agreed? We agree with that, right? So then, therefore, moms should insist that Jack and Jill brush their teeth every single day at least. Agreed? Okay. Maybe even with consequences. We certainly make our kids brush their teeth. Okay, so then let's flip that around and say, since it has been demonstrably proven, the benefits of dental hygiene and the, the cost imposed on the government for those who do not brush their teeth, then a government agent should check you into your bathroom every morning and hold you next to the sink until you have brushed your teeth. How many of us would accept that? What are we talking about here? We're talking about two kinds of authority. A compulsory authority is that which has the threat of violence attached to it. And it must be limited as such. But then there are other realms of authority that are inherently more relational and more voluntary, more based in love, and they have more power. But if you want to make the compulsory authority become a totalitarian, you completely eradicate the other kind of authority and create these voids that the state has to start filling. And that's where the theology in the church is responsible for this. Pastors, people didn't understand that there were two realms. Jesus was the first one to introduce two kinds of authority. The, the authority of Christ and of Caesar. Remember, they wanted to trap him, so they came and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They apparently knew he did not like paying taxes to Caesar or else this wouldn't have been a trap. 
And what does he say? He says, take the coin, and he, whose image is on it? It's the image of Caesar. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. This is the first time in history that any philosopher, thinker, or prophet, or the Lord himself, distinguished between two categories and allowed the coexistence of both. A spiritual category and a political category. This is really the birth of the separation of church and state. Jesus doubles down on this when he is brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, you have said rightly that I am a king. For this cause I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. But then he, he, he clarifies, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would pick up swords and fight so that I would not be delivered into your hand. But my kingdom is from another place. And we, we are mindful that that Christ's salvation did not entail throwing off the Roman, the Roman yoke. Instead, Christianity flourished in the environment of oppression. Because there could be two categories. There could be the realm of coercion and the realm of love. The authority of Caesar and the authority of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the problem is, is that the church lost that distinction. And so they started imposing on the church the same limits, that, that the same buzz phrases and limits that sounded good in, on Caesar. And that, those were right to give to Caesar because he bears the sword. But they weren't right to give to mom or even the church community because they don't bear the sword. And you can come and go as you want. And the only thing that can keep you there is your love. But we conceived of no distinction, and so we lapsed into something pretty ugly. So, have I lost you? Give me a few minutes and I'll get, I'll, I'll get there. Okay, so in examining the worst cases of totalitarianism in the history, in the 20th century specifically, but in, in recent history, um, Historians and, and political scientists have, have said that there are two kinds of authority. There is the impersonal and that there is the personal kind of authority. History's worst expressions of, of totalitarianism emerged among populations that lost the critical distinctions between these two. And often it corresponded to destroying the church. So whether in Nazi Germany, in Stalinist Russia, in Mao's China, in Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, you look at genocide and almost always they get rid of the church first. Why do you think that is? Because it's the only authority that is not fighting elections, that is not on the ballot, but that is exerting this internal powerful restraint on human nature. So they had to get rid of it every single time. Even, even Nazism. Himmler was famous for saying, I will not worship that effeminate Jew hang naked on a cross. They pretended to tolerate the church, but they, they, took, off, they took out the bishop and re replaced him with the Reichsbishop of their choosing. They arrested uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all of those of the confessing church, threw him in prison. So they saw the church as the hindrance to what was happening. But in America and in modern Western culture, 
they haven't banned Christianity. They've merely convinced Christianity to destroy itself. They've convinced Christianity to adopt the pluralism that it would restrain, to basically conflate the pluralism appropriate to civic authority and put that over Christ, and then say, yeah, you can be anything you want, because <laughs> it doesn't really matter anymore. Everybody's a Christian. I used to do prison ministry. I ministered to rapists and murderers. I mean, the worst of the worst. And they all thought they were saved and on their way to heaven. I don't remember ever starting a, a, a season of discussion where everybody in the room did not claim that they were saved and on their way to heaven, no matter what their condition. It's madness. It's absolute madness. And all we are left with is the empty shell of words that have no bearing on our lives. And as this ugly man of sin is corporately released in the culture in expressions of drug abuse and violence and suicides and uh, uh, massacre shootings, and we say, where's the government? Where's the government? Please, the government needs to do something. Oh, God, no. Parents and pastors and people need to come together and rediscover what the church was meant to be. It was born in a time of oppression. So, totalitarians don't like personal authority. They want everything to be under their control. If, um, if you look at some of the historical examples of the ugliest uh, points in history, Stanley Milgram did a study and it was one of the most repeated studies of its kind. And uh, he, he wanted to understand what made populations side with tyrants against their own judgment and conscience. That's a fair question, right? And what he showed was that these populations had been brainwashed to accept expertise to such a degree that they would override their conscience. And to prove it, he did a study at Yale University. This is Stanley Milgram's study. It was one of the most repeated psychological studies of its kind. He wanted to understand in what environment will people override their conscience, conscience and become the, the lackeys of totalitarians. And so he brought people into this laboratory setting where they didn't know that they were the subject of the study. And he sat them down on the other side of a glass uh, wall and he put them in front of these levers where they were going to pull electric levers that would send electric shock to a person on the other side of the glass wall. They didn't know that this was acting and this wasn't actually happening. They didn't know that they were the subject of the study. They thought the person on the other side was the subject of the study. And these people who would normally never hurt a kitten, never do anything ugly to somebody, when they are in Yale University and a man in a white coat with a clipboard and badges there and, and everything is all the trappings of the expertise and science of authority is present, 100% of American subject, uh, people who underwent the study, 100% were willing to hurt somebody on the other side of the glass if the expert told
told them it was okay. 100%. And 65% were willing to keep pushing the lever until they believed they had killed the person on the other side of the glass. 100% would inflict pain, and 65% would do so to the point of killing the person on the other side of the glass. And he said, why? Why? And he showed that it was the aura of science and expertise. That's why I said it's the cult of statism. We pretend that cults or churches or aberrant religious groups that we need to be very wary of. But R.J. Rummel, the unmatched political science scientist in his field, proved that the most deadly threat to human existence is organized government. He showed that governments in the 20th century alone had killed no less than 262 million of their own people outside of war. This surpasses everything. Heart disease, cancer, car accidents, no threat is comparable to what he termed democide. How does this happen? It happens when people have no counterbalancing voices of authority in their life, but they increasingly consolidate behind one kind of authority, the impersonal authority of the state and its experts. The Bickman study, originally started in, in 1974 and since repeated, was conducted in, originally in Brooklyn, New York, but it focused on the willingness of nurses in hospitals to violate their own training, their own knowledge, and their own conscience in obedience to the expertise. The Bickman study showed that a full 95%, I'm sorry, the Hoffman study, Hoffling is, I said Bickman, it's Hoffling. The Hoffling study that showed that a 95% of nurses were willing to immediately administer lethal doses of drugs to patients if a doctor showing all the right apparel and appearances of his office commanded them to do so. 95% did it without question. Everybody should rightly say this is a problem with authority. But it's not just a problem with authority, it's a problem with having one kind of authority only. It is totalitarianism. Whether we realize it or not, when we teach people that God has no voice, church has no voice, family has no voice, only the state and its science has a voice, that is the cult of statism, I would submit. One of the more encouraging studies, I should have been hitting these, one of the more encouraging studies came from Samuel and Pearl O'Liner. They were both survivors of, of the Holocaust, and he was a survivor of Auschwitz. And they wanted to go and find not what made people capitulate with tyrants. They wanted to find what made people resist tyrants. So they did the most wide-ranging study of Christians and non-believers alike, but it was predominantly Christians. The vast majority were Christians. What were the common markers of people 
who saved the Jews from the Holocaust. What, what, what was it about these people? The O-liners conducted extensive interviews with people who had rescued Jews during the Holocaust. They found that the rescuers had a strong sense of social responsibility and empathy, traits that were frequently nurtured in moral and spiritual communities. They found that these people were, in their words, living under a, quote, black and white sense of right and wrong. They had not come under the haze, into the fog of relativism. They still thought that was wrong and that was right. Most of these people were attached to faith communities and almost entirely or disproportionately in rural settings. They simply had not been educated out of their morals. You say, but education doesn't take you from your morals. No, but it takes you from every authority except the state and science. So then if the state and science changes morals, you change with it. One example of this exceptionalism can be seen in the story of Lichambon and their pastor André Trocmay. When I was in Europe last year, I was privileged to go visit their community. These people saved more than 5,000 Jewish children during the Holocaust. It has been said that it was the safest place for Jewish children during the genocide. What's unique about them is that they were not a violent people. They did not bear arms. They did not have bunkers. They did not violently resist or join the partisans. Ironically, they formed a covenant of love and nonviolence with each other. And when the Gestapo came and the French Vichy government officials, uh, they told them, we have an undisclosed number of Jewish children living with us, but we will not distinguish between them and us. And the solidarity of an entire region saying no, for some inexplicable reason, the authorities backed away. And no, no Jew was ever taken from that setting. One of their members was, was put to death. I think it was his cousin or his nephew was put to death. But it was unparalleled. And it was simply a display of absolute solidarity. And it wasn't, what I was blessed to find is it wasn't just one congregation. There were seven churches that had made the same covenant with each other in all the region of that nation, of that, of that part of France, in the Sierra Leone region of the hill country there. Seven churches had covenanted together and they were all going to have the same attitude, the same approach. It's incredible. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews alive today because of the efforts of those Christians. God has called the church to be more than what it is. It's supposed to be the light of the world. It's supposed to be a city on a hill. It's not just a personal thing. The individualistic salvation, me and Jesus, and personal this and personal that. It's supposed to be a city on a hill. It's supposed to be God's demonstration to principalities and powers. If you know your Bible, you know I'm quoting from it. 
demonstration to principalities and powers. It's God's answer to tyranny. It's supposed to be the manifold wisdom of God and the pillar and the ground of the truth. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I will build my man. I will build my woman. He didn't say, I will build my family even. He said, I will build my church. I submit to you that the days are coming when we're not going to make it as individuals or even families. We're going to have to come together. We're going to have to anticipate what's coming and either see it turn around through a revival like the Great Awakening or see us become those who can resist it effectively, not with the weapons of the flesh, but with the weapons of the Spirit, of love, of faith, of fidelity. Jesus, a psalm says that Zion, which is the church today, is built as a city compacted together. Not as individuals fractured, but a city compacted. Peter says, as lively stones, you are being built together into a spiritual house. Ephesians says, the whole building is joined together and being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what's happening. We don't just want it to happen among our numbers. We believe that a new level of solidarity and mutual commitment and collaboration is called for for the church worldwide. There's a little hope of a band doing it in Virginia and Montana and Idaho and Mexico and South Africa and New Zealand and Israel and Wisconsin. My dad, who started our community, said, our great motive over the decades can perhaps be summarized as a desire to participate in the creation of what one man has called communities of exemplary Christian existence. This is the time when we start to make the distinctions, when we start to see, to judge, and to act. Thank you very much.